You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. We found an interesting story out of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Listen to this. A minimum security prisoner escaped from a halfway house in Alaska and then after getting away, decided to come back three hours later, uh, but not to turn himself in. State troopers say 20-year-old Joshua Yaska returned with an SUV and tried to help other inmates flee the facility in Fairbanks. Staff members say uh, Yaska was spotted leaving on a bike just after 1 a.m. Sunday, and the trooper said he returned about 4.20 a.m. By the way, somehow found an SUV. Just apparently somebody had left it for him, donated it, and tried to aid in the escape of other inmates. Authorities say he tried to uh, strike the, uh, a halfway house employee with the vehicle. And anyway, they, they caught up with him that night after he broke into a relative's home. Now, we're trying to, as we were talking about the story with our team, we decided, you know, sometimes when you make a plan, it sounds better. Like it, it, it seems like it's better in your head. Then it really gets rolled out, you know, as you're as you're trying to break everyone out of the prison. And we, we thought that uh, when it comes down to it, that he he probably thought it was going to be more like a Braveheart moment. Would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take Oh, yeah, see, see, he thought it was going to be like that, this Braveheart moment where he just he would motivate them and they were all pumped up. and They're like, yes. And then they storm out of the building. Uh, it actually ended up sounding more like this. And then he was arrested. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it sounds a lot better. Like you are free men. And it's more like, (laughs) we're coming to get you. Yeah. It always looks better when you when when you're thinking it through. Hey, you guys, I'm breaking you out. (sighs) That's the problem with being a criminal today. You got to think it through. And yet you may not have the capacity to think it through. Hmm. See? This is why you got to be careful, kids. It's uh, it's never it's never going to be pretty. Um, as we talk on the show so many times um, and and get into life, it's it's always harder than we think it's going to be. I mean, think about it. When in your life has it ever just been easy? Like ah, holy cow, life is so easy. Because if if the minute you're thinking, man, life is easy, it seems like you're setting yourself up for something big to happen. Have you ever felt like that? The minute you start to think, boy, this is a cakewalk. Or the minute you think that school, for example, is just, oh, it's so, boy, I am loving what I'm doing. Then all of a sudden something weird will happen. And it might even be good, like a promotion. Now all of a sudden you get a promotion. So no longer do you just get to be, you know, a great salesperson. You now get to manage eight other salespeople, which is so great because, right, it's more money. 
And then you start hearing them tell the stories about how their car didn't work, so they missed the appointment, and then it didn't. (sighs) If there's anything I've learned in life, just give it time. If it's too easy, it'll get harder. If it's too hard, give it time, because guess why? It'll get easier. The great benefit of life um, and, and things that we think are easy, things that we think are hard, just give it time. Because in the end, it'll get, it'll get better. It always does. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Gordon B. Hinckley, who was once a president of uh, the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church that uh, runs BYU, owns BYU. And one of um, his great uh, quotes that he's, he's so known, known for is um, simply keep trying, be believing, be happy, don't get discouraged, things will work out. Be happy. Keep at it. Keep believing. Be happy. Don't get discouraged. Things will work out. So if you've ever doubted, folks, take a big, deep breath. Things will work out. Just give it a few more days. Don't give up. Just get busy. Get working on it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Life is good. And... We sit here, we get so caught up in the news from like Orlando and the political news. But meanwhile, there's just a family from Arlington that's running a site and uh, for 3D printing of prosthetic hands, right? And they're not, again, they're, they're not bionic. They're not, sometimes the plastic doesn't work. They're, they're strung together and made functional by, you know, strong fishing line, Um so they're not perfect, but what they've created is a community, and it, I really feel like it's it's the model. It, it is the model of of charity. We've seen it uh, on the show. We try to bring you a lot of these people so that you can see the good that's going on out there. But this world's going to be changed by by groups of people, by communities of people. It's no longer going to be done by one person. So we we spend all of this this time on Trump and on Clinton, and yet the world's going to be changed by more people like the Owens that we just heard from. Uh, Margaret Mead has a great quote that says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So you're a part of that community, and um, everybody's got something to offer, again, the community is more valuable than probably um, some of the things that we we might hope to have happen. I mean, I would love this charity, uh, enablingthefuture.org, to be able to move much faster than it is, for example, um, to, you know, improve the lives of thousands or millions of people, if possible. But really, in a way, that the community has to go at the community's pace. It has to go at, a, at their speed. Um, and the benefit of it going at that speed is that eventually that uh, community will be able to sustain itself and grow itself. And it will grow so organically that it will probably have a better impact on life and on, um, on its purpose, on its goal. When we think about all this technology and, and the, how it enables us, how it takes us to a completely different level – what what are you doing with it personally? Um, 
it, it's, it can be to your advantage. It can be to your disadvantage. And we always have on the show the people that come and talk to us about technology and how it's, we end up wasting our time and how we might be able to take better advantage of it. But simply finding a community. We also talk about the fact that a lot of our, uh, us feel like we're being, you know, we're becoming more and more solo uh, creatures because of technology. It's not actually broadening my circle. It's making me, you know, be impacted by what others are doing. And then I pull away and are, you know, depressed because I don't have a boat because <laughs> I just looked at my friend's Facebook page and he just took his kids out on a boat and I don't even have a boat. Um, the reality is, though, again, it's this is another example from enablingthefuture.org that you can go belong to a, a bigger community. So imagine that you're just – imagine you're uh, an engineer and you've always loved putting you know the, the furniture together from Ikea and that always has been exciting for you. But you hardly you, – you've bought all the furniture you need. Where can I use my talents? Um, maybe you have kids that are no longer in scouts so you can't build the Pinewood Derby car for them anymore <laughs> as many fathers are known to do. So what you might be able to do with some of your great skills is to reach out and find a community. We're all members of a greater community, right? And if we could find a way to go take our talents, our gifts, and hook into an organization like enablingthefuture.org, it's a chance to give back to the world. It's a chance to serve. It's a chance to then use your gifts, your talents, the things that are unique to you. I'm not an engineer, so if I became a part of this community, I would probably just be a cheerleader on the side, uh, maybe a fundraiser, but I wouldn't be one that's that's innovating the device or the the the, the design. But that's not my role. But there are designers that would be great there. So. Don't get down. Don't get discouraged when it comes to all of this technology, when it comes to um, what you can offer the world, because really what you can offer the world is just you. And if we can find ways to to get into these types of situations or create some of them out of BYU, we've seen some pretty amazing stories, including uh, the design of wheelchairs um, that were just made out of PVC pipe uh, that are incredible for people. There's just no end to the, the needs of the world and your gifts and your abilities. So don't just sit back and think you're done because you're retired. Don't sit and think that, you know, because you're a stay-at-home parent that, that you know, that's, that's enough maybe. Maybe what you could do is if you're still being called to go innovate, if you're still being called to use your talents, your gifts, you know, your degrees, go find a charity, go find some community to be a part of. It could be your church community. It could be giving back to your school community on the PTA. There's so many ways that this world needs you. And maybe that is the fastest way to create a better world. It's it's probably not through political you know drive. And it's probably not going to happen through just a business endeavor. Um, don't ever look away from the idea that it might just simply be giving back, serving, and being a member of a community. Powerful, powerful things create uh, these, these wonderfully powerful charities. But the, the thing that's probably most important is a person that cares, a person with a heart that wants to belong and wants to do what they can. And that, I believe, is you, my friends. So we'll take a break, come back, uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show helping you see the good in the world and helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the rise and fall of major corporations is something we hear about in the news quite frequently. Do you remember some of these names? Eastern Airlines, Lionel Corporation, RCA. They've all but vanished from Wall Street. So what happened to them? What led to their complete separation from the modern business world? Joining us on the phone is Dr. John Cotter, an award-winning business and management thought leader. He's here with us this morning to discuss his book, Uh, That's Not How We Do It Here, a story about how organizations rise and fall and can rise again. And to teach us about this success, we welcome you, Dr. John Carter. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. We love um, learning and uh, to to be able to learn from you and your great work. You've been at studying businesses, whether as a professor or a, at Harvard or a New York Times bestselling author for years. What what's the key? I mean, the, the some organizations seem to be able to hold it off and and make it work and continue to stay afloat, while others just disintegrate. Well, um, I mean, there are lots of reasons, but one of the great challenges in life for individuals uh, as well as organizations is if you get the slightest bit uh, um, successful and get comfortable, you become complacent. Mm. Um, And as long as you've uh, set yourself up either in a job or for a company in an industry where you can, uh, you know, do pretty well, it is amazing how much uh, that complacency can hold on, even though the world is changing around you. And that's the fundamental thing that's happening today, and it's affecting everybody. It's, it's happening to us as uh, individuals in our careers. It's happening, it's, it's happening to governments, uh, businesses, big and small. Um, industries are changing. Uh, technology is driving a lot of the change, but that's not all. Um, global integration um, is having a huge effect on things, and you you could guess other kinds of of, of changes. And the smart people and the smart um, businesses or or nonprofits or parts of the government are those who are trying to figure out okay um, if it's changing. And in most places, it's changing faster. In other words, the speed of change is going up. That that turns out to be a hugely important thing. Then probably the way we've done things in the past is not going to work as well in the future. So how do we go about just, uh, you know, thinking about things? How do we go about organizing ourselves? Um, How do we go about making decisions that fits this uh, new environment? And um, that's how I think... Um, the great firms uh, uh, stay great. Uh, some uh, some great people, terrific human beings, uh, don't uh, kind of uh, uh, level off in their 30s or in their 40s. They keep growing and doing amazing things with amazing uh, benefits to them and their families. They, I guess the, the name of the book, uh, your newest book, is That's Not How We Do It Here. I guess that gives us the idea that one problem might be our thinking that that it's not changing like no 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 we we do it this way we we've always done it this way it is i guess that's a that's something we have to overcome that things are changing and your your thinking better be changing as well yeah and and how you do things but it, it see it happens it happens so easily you know in in a business uh, to be efficient and you and, and there's huge huge pressures to be efficient um 
you uh, you learn from the past, and you take those learnings and you put them into policies and procedures, um, and you uh, uh, chop yourself into si- what we call silos. You know, d- departments right. and divisions and the like that are based upon basically what was uh, an efficient way to, to implement what we've done in the past, and all of that stuff starts to solidify as uh, just, you know, the way we do it here. Mm-hmm. And new people are brought in, and they're exposed to that, and that's uh, sometimes, sometimes it's all they've ever really seen, and they get good at handling that. And so um, faced with new problems or new people suggesting new stuff, it's amazing how, you know, a perfectly bright, sensible person will say something that looks so stupid <laughs> To us on the outside, yeah. Um, which is no. Listen to this guy; he's got a great idea. What do you mean shutting him off? Yeah, and that's not how we do it here. But I guess but that's our success, do. right? Our success seems to have gotten us here. But and then, and then yeah, like you're saying, then we don't realize we still need to get there. Yeah, and and this whole point that the world is not just changing, but it's changing at an accelerating uh, rate. All kinds of uh, data backs that up. That's not just opinion. And that has just vast implications, um, again, for, for businesses and uh, all the way down to individuals and their, and their own careers. Um, yeah, because if it's speeding up, is, am I correct? If, if, if the world's speeding up, if the change in the marketplace and in our businesses is speeding up, then our ability to learn – and to discern would have to be faster. Absolutely. And you've got to put, put a, a bigger emphasis on that. Um, you've got to, on the one hand, just make sure you, you run the business each day and you don't, you know, create enough problems for customers or for your staff or anybody else that um, uh, it just becomes a horrendous firefighting, you know, uh, scene. But on the other hand, you've got to also be constantly uh thinking okay um what's happening around us that we can learn from um what seems to be coming at us uh what is not uh, uh what, what's see one of the things that we've gotten relatively good at in the last or good firms have gotten good at in the last 20 years is uh, called let's figure out what quote best practices are and make sure we've incorporated those into the company and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, uh, you know, that can be that's better than not doing that. Mm-hmm. But but by definition, best practices have to be from the past. I mean, best practices is not you're not going to learn about my best practices um, by uh, having a five minute phone call with me. You'd have to come and study me or you'd have to study people who have studied me. And by the time you get around to figuring it out, and by the way, when did we figure this out? Five years ago, 10 years mm-hmm. ago. And by the time you get around to actually being able to convince your organization to use that and execute it, it's 15 years out of date. And there's nothing wrong with that if the world isn't changing much on it. Right. But what if the world is changing at a faster and faster rate? You're executing these best practices, which actually are no longer best practices. They're just going to get you into trouble. And that's happening all over the place among what a lot of people would consider pretty uh, good firms, but who are making themselves vulnerable because of this uh, this 
way of going about things. Hmm. It's yeah, it's true because we would document the best practices, we've shared them, and then we want to enroll everybody into doing them. But you can't afford to take the time. You but you can't afford not to learn from best practices. But you also can't afford to take forever doing it. Um, in, in your book, you mention um, uh, you use a, a metaphor, a story about a, about a, a meerkat. Is that right? Yeah, a meerkat uh, clan in uh, Africa. Meerkats are those. I don't know what yeah. movies they they've been in. They're cute. Let's they are cute. They, they poke their heads up and they're always looking around. Yep. Yeah. They live in burrows and they're cute. There you go. So teach us the story. What's the what's the metaphor? Well, it's just, it, 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 yeah, it, it's a metaphor about um, um, life today and the very problems that people are facing today and some of the incorrect uh, conclusions that people draw about what's a good solution and um, about um, a way forward into a future in which things uh, – uh, change uh, faster and faster by looking at a clan who's doing just fine, you know, it's been very successful until the world starts, to, until its habitat literally starts to change on it. And it relies on what it knows how to do. And of course, things just get worse and worse. Mm. Um, and uh, somebody from the clan that in just horrible frustration um, over all the frustration in the clan and they're not succeeding goes out and looks for a better way and finds uh, other um, uh, stories that are just as bad or horrible and then stumbles upon something that's extremely different. And for a while, she thinks she thinks the thing that's basically uh, she's grown up in a mature business, you know, mm-hmm. uh, General Mills, and she goes out and she discovers a little high-tech business out in California. Mm. And for a while, she says, this is totally different and it's really cool. Um, and what's, of course, the high tech business is so good, it grows. And at a certain point, because it doesn't want to change either. Right. Um, it outgrows what it can do with its free willing, uh, no rule, uh, no hierarchy, uh, entrepreneurial style. And the whole thing blows up on her again. And, and she's smart enough to kind of start putting these pieces together because she, she's a natural learner. Uh, she has natural curiosity, and um, with with some risk and trepidation, she goes back to her original clan and manages to get some help from others, and it's a difficult thing mm. to start helping them to understand this new idea, which is, what if you could combine the best of both worlds? of a business that is really, really solid and gets the work done efficiently and is very, very forward-looking and entrepreneurial and innovative so that you um, you don't run into problems today and you're constantly looking forward and kind of inventing the future before it hits you. Hmm. And uh, the end of the story is about her and an increasingly large group of people around her uh, with some eventual help from the bosses, one of whom gets it. And they, um, yeah, and they get it. That's cool. One of whom gets it. And uh, as they start inventing a whole new way of running a, a meerkat uh, clan, and it's a way, of course, that is our best guess at this point from the research we've done and from the research I've done at Harvard and the research I've done in this consulting company that's been created around my work 
of what can um, be the kind of the pioneering uh, uh, business of the future. Well, which let's. Is very exciting. It's very exciting, and in fact, let's take a break. Come back, John. Talk about it, and I'd love you to teach us some of those 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 learnings, those best practices that uh, a blend of the old and the new style. We're speaking again with Dr. John Cotter and uh, talking about his book, That's Not How We Do It Here, a story about how, organiz- how organizations rise and fall and can rise again. Also, uh, we'll come back and uh, continue the learning with the great uh, Professor Cotter. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Honored to have on the phone with us Dr. John Cotter, who is an award-winning uh, New York Times best-selling author, also an award-winning business and management thought leader, plus entrepreneur himself, uh, has an organization called CotterInternational.com, uh, where he takes his experience as a Harvard professor, plus all of his consulting experience, and is teaching us how to keep our organizations alive in this uh, constantly changing um, world that we're living in where learning and becoming a learning organization is life or death. Dr. John Carter, thank you so much. My pleasure again. This really and truly, I think it's important. Learning, it's you would think we would just kind of do it naturally, but uh, do we? Do we learn to be the best we can be, or do we just learn, you know, what's worked? Yeah, well, I, or or worse. Or worse, huh? Uh, we don't learn much at all. I mean, it worries me as an educator, or the part of me that's an educator. Uh, it's part of the discussion um, I had earlier today um, with somebody who's on the faculty of Harvard Business School that um, too often um, we're not helping people um, in uh K-12 education, much less undergraduate education or beyond, um, learn to be learners and mm. and see the virtue of that, and want and and get enjoyment uh, from that. Uh, um, and as the world becomes uh, faster moving, by definition, that's going to be. Uh, I mean, it's already happening. If you look at, for example, a place like Harvard Business School and look at the education that's happening there, when I first joined the faculty many decades ago, uh, I'm sure if we counted just the number of people and the number of days that they sat in the classroom, um, 80 to 90 percent of the education that went on there was for uh, MBA degrees. We Mm. didn't do any undergraduate. And the other 10 or 20 percent was what was called executive education. These are people that came back for shorter courses in their 30s or 40s or 50s. Today, the MBA program is the same size. They've kept it the same size. But executive ed has grown by at least a factor of 10, Hmm. if not uh, more than that. Um, Why? Because, Because people are getting it. That uh, that uh, uh, you know what you pick up with your undergraduate degree uh, is terrific, but by the time you're 30, if you're not just voracious at reading and talking and 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 thinking, 
uh, you're going to have to find some way to get some more education about what's happening in the world and where people think they're going. Yeah. And more and more people are. I mean, the the really the the most successful businessmen I men I know and women now that I know um, in their late fifties and in their sixties and their sixties are are the ones that keep asking questions about what's happening. You know, mm. what, what's happening over in China right now? Um, um, what's happening in this branch of technology? They're just naturally curious. And uh, what's happening uh, lower in my organization? You know, yeah. Um, are, are we really, are we really capitalizing on the ideas that people have? Are they running into barriers and in trying to execute this stuff? If so, what can I do to help? Um, uh, it's amazing when people become relatively satisfied or successful how they stop asking questions of that mm. kind. The questions they ask are more um, um, about trying to pin you down to see if you've done your job, you know. Yeah, uh, trap uh, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're not learning. Um, they're, they're just trying to uh, um, meet today's standards and, and whack you on the head <laughs> if you didn't do your job. What, what, are some, uh, what are some signs that your company needs some serious learning? Like, so if I'm a manager or a leader of my team or my company, because there is the delay too, right? There's the delay between the, when, I, when I'm getting the information versus when, it's, when I'm needing the information sometimes. What, what are signs that I see in my company that it's time to learn? Well, if, here's, a good, here's a good sign. Um, look around, not just at yourself, but look around at the people who work for you and look at how they operate and how much they are coming up with new ideas and actually executing those ideas, mm. how much they are raising questions, not just to be troublesome, um, but to be helpful yeah. uh, and trying to figure out how to use uh, what they've learned from that in their jobs. Um, uh, not just, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, are they throwing ideas at you to sort out, you know, to make your 10-hour uh, day 12 hours long, um, but that they are actually kind of in, in their own way, all the way down to the bottom, the, the new 21-year-old grad, um, how much do they, do they automatically as do their jobs, plus they're constantly trying to figure out what new is going on, uh, what they can learn from uh, the outside the firm, mm. not just them, but outside the firm, um, and uh, trying things that aren't risky, that are low cost, uh, and making things better or making things or coming up with big ideas uh, that they start to test out. I mean, if you've got that kind of activity going on around you, the probability is you'll be pulled into it too. It'll be, you know, it'll be just too exciting not right. to stay out of it. And, and you may think of yourself as a great learner, but if you've got none of that going on in your organization, bad sign. Mm, that's true. And, and sometimes we, we push that down, don't we, by, you know, like poo-pooing all the questions. And I oh, guess if, if we're not or seeing that, see that's that. a problem. Oh, yeah. Somebody, somebody uh, you're in a meeting and somebody raises uh, some interesting question about, uh, you know, he, uh, he or she went to, uh, let's say you sell a food product, have been going to various supermarkets um, um, one after another every week. 
and and this person tells you, you want to be your subordinates, that he's seeing this interesting pattern of how uh, shelf stocking is changing. And he's been talking to some of the managers of these supermarkets. He's done, out of his own uh, uh, time, this little research project, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he wants to talk about it at a meeting, and you find yourself looking at your watch, right? Yeah. Because you've got an agenda. And, I mean, it's one thing to say, Harry, you know, this is really incredible. Uh, Can we take this offline, and then we'll bring it back to this meeting next time? It's another thing to just, well, thank you, Harry, but we're late. <laughs> Next? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just shut it well, down. Everybody else reads that signal and it says to themselves, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right, right. Not going to risk that. Of well, course not. And that's, I guess, that's part of the... That's part of the deal. Like, you have to create a spirit of this, right? A desire of Correct. learning. And if you're not learning yourself... That I mean, it, which would be hard. I could see by the time you're 60, it might be easy to no longer want to just keep pushing Correct. the curiosity. Correct. But, but instead, um, if you don't have it as a leader, then your people probably won't have it. Oh, absolutely, because they take this. Uh, most of the time, people take the signal from uh, the boss, and um, if the boss doesn't like X, they don't do X. Mm. Um, life is too short. What else do you do? What else do you suggest we do to to kind of stir the pot a little bit or get get our people um, curious? Well, one is is to get discussion going and thinking going about opportunities, Uh, not just the current situation and problems. You're going to have to do that. I mean, if there's a problem today, you've got to solve it. You know, if a customer's screaming or if something broke at a plant, you've got to take care of it. That's just business. That's basics. That's that's kindergarten. Um, but uh, focusing on and getting thinking about and getting conversation about what are the big opportunities. Now, some people will say, well, in my industry, there are no big opportunities. We have not found in one situation with our consulting company, with one client ever, no matter what they said, that we couldn't create um, some uh, sessions in which we couldn't get the executives in the right frame of mind, and by the end of the session, all excited by some statements that they're they're writing down mm. about great opportunities for the firm. So opportunity, opportunity. Second is uh, the more that they can um, get that information out with the same sense of excitement that they begin to build about it, which means it's not only just head stuff, it's heart stuff, hearts and minds. That Remember, that's what all great leaders do. They win hearts and minds. Mm. To create this positive sense of urgency, not this, this you know, oh my God, the, the, uh, the, the table's on fire and I'm locked in a room uh, <laughs> sense of urgency. Right. Uh, but this positive sense of urgency, um, and it, if, if, if if, if the top group is identified, you know, if we go north, there's some great land up there that really grows great chop. Uh, and get, if we get people aligned to that basic concept of an opportunity and a sense of urgency, that just that sets the stage for some wonderful, wonderful things to happen. Um, a second is that you're not going to get some of the both the thinking and the execution happening through the same mechanism that you get the job done every day. You get the job done every day through a hierarchy, through smart, not dumb, uh, uh, procedures and policies and 
and the like and job descriptions. Uh, new stuff executed quickly uh, will come through an organization that looks more like a, a startup in Silicon Valley. Mm. It's more networky-like. It has few policies and procedures. People are, are willing and able to talk to anybody. You know, it's diverse groups of people that just meet and talk on a regular basis, no silos. Um, uh, you're going to need that, and it's got to be connected to and integrated in closely with the mothership. Trying to put it, you know, 3,000 miles away as a think tank doesn't work. Right. That's one of the things I was talking about with a guy this morning. And the more that the, you can get those ideas going and not turn them into big projects, but turn them into uh, little projects where um, uh, that are not expensive and it can be done quickly. So you can start creating some real learning and you can start creating some uh, quick wins hmm. where um, it begins to tell you, yeah, we were right. You know, there's some really cool stuff if we move north, hmm. and if we move it up at a much faster speed. It gives you credibility. It gets more people on board. It gets more people excited. And if, uh, if the winds are uh, chosen correctly, it'll actually help you with uh, uh, today's um, uh, business. What a great learning, though. The, the, the delivery system of, a, of an existing company doesn't necessarily create the learning that might need to be for the future. So we could break that off a little bit. I mean, you can still learn from your systems and your current structure, but you're saying you might need a smaller little exploratory team to, to, to go work on some of the future things. Sure, and and teams would be great. Yeah, and uh, it's even greater if you can uh, have not a dedicated group that, that too often kind of get lost mm-hmm. over in the corner or get put in a, you know, in a in, in a, a little uh, group out in California. Right. But it's 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 a, a group of people that don't normally um, associate with each other from marketing and engineering and production. Um, that have regular jobs and are just uh, excited enough about wanting to do this stuff that they volunteer to take on some of these, uh, develop some of these, and take on some of these projects so that there's never a disconnect between the new work and the new learning and the new thinking about the future and the organization that ultimately is going to have to take on that stuff and make it a part of daily reality. I love it. No, that's and and again, I think that would innovate and energize, or uh, probably enervate and energize so many people, right? Because Correct. finally, I'm I'm part of creating new with what I know. I mean, that's Correct. so many people are disengaged. Correct. Well, and a lot of what this is, at least clients tell us, is that for the first time they find lots and lots of employees saying that they're engaged. Mm. And they're not just engaged in kind of feeling good about the company. They're engaged in doing something that's really meaningful. Mm -hmm. And people love that. Yeah. We all love that. Oh, yeah. And they're a part of it, and they're appreciative, and and they make it work. Dr. John Carter, or Cotter, we appreciate this. This has been a great learning for me. I thank you for your time. Uh, You're more than welcome. Seriously important, folks. That's not how we do it here. That's not how we do it here. Get rid of the phrase. Instead, let's go figure out how we can do it. Powerful stuff. Go check out the book. That's not how we do it here. And uh, learn more from John Cotter. We'll continue this uh, after the break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends. You know, we live in a country where owning a car is almost a necessity, but the process of buying and taking care of a car isn't always as glamorous as it may seem. Our producer, Leanna Tan, went through this for the first time this past week when she bought her first car, and she's going to share with us a little about her, about her experience. And he'd come down the chimney, and then he would give you all the stuff that he made, man. He did it all in one night, man. Hey, now how'd he do that, man? Oh, well, man, he took the freeway. I am finally a proud car owner. That's right. I bought my first car just last week. Cars that are brand new as far as I'm concerned. We are forced by law to sell them as used. Do you want to save some money? And I thought it would be great. I could arrive at and leave parties whenever I wanted to. I could visit my family more often. And I'd double my wardrobe space and have an entire extra storage unit to put all my other clothes and shoes. I pictured the windows rolled down, my hair flowing in the wind, music blasting on the speakers, and gliding down the highway in bliss. I soon came to realize that there's a lot more that comes with having a car, and it's not all flowing hair and bliss. With great power comes great responsibility. So, as a warning to all you car shoppers, here are five woes of car ownership that you should probably prepare for if you're considering a purchase. What? Spare cash and padded savings account will become fond memories. Sorry, I ain't got no money. I'm not trying to be funny, but I left it home Buying a car means more than just purchasing the car. It comes with the great ball and chain of monthly insurance bills. For over 75 years, people have saved money with Gecko. Cut it. What? What did I say? Not to mention filling the gas tank, checkups, car washes, and don't forget all the little accessories. Yes, in our day and age, it's almost impossible to drive without investing in one of those little phone holder gadgets. (gasps) A cop holder? Bert, we gotta stop and get a cop! And just a word to the wise, when you're shopping on Amazon for seat covers... Please avoid the hot pink faux fur ones. Two. Your carbon footprint will double in size. Too much carbon monoxide for me to bear. All those warm fuzzies you felt thinking of all the trees and animals you were saving when you walked to work before will be gone. Stench. Be prepared to carry a burden of shame, knowing that every time you push the gas pedal, you're contributing to the destruction of the ozone layer and the spread of global warming. Relevant contributions to global warming. In our country, we are responsible for more than all of South America, all of Africa, all of Say nothing about the extra 10 pounds you'll probably pack on now that you're not walking several miles a day. Three! You will be volunteering yourself for a life of solitude. Those tender carpooling days are over. Yes, all those midnight grocery runs and weekend errands you enjoyed tagging along with your roommates and friends suddenly turn into quiet, lonely trips to Walmart. You will be experiencing a new level of self-consciousness and fear. I sense much fear in you. While your entire life you became accustomed to leisurely riding in the passenger seat, rattling off details of your day and occasionally suggesting an alternate route, now you will become hyper-aware of all those signs that once nearly passed your peripheral vision. Can we please ask someone for directions? Yes, you'll have to channel back to that time you were 15, half asleep in driver's ed, trying to comprehend an extremely dry manual. Don't forget that when the road slows up or down, you must adjust the pressure on the gas pedal accordingly. Because now, the rules of the road apply to you. 
Not to mention learning directions. 60 eastbound just before the 57, a couple cars in a big rig. You realize how much you took for granted those people who could remember how to get to your house after going there once. Oh, no. As you constantly punch your own address into the GPS just to get home from work every day. Five. You suddenly realize there's not enough room in the world for you. As a pedestrian, the world was yours. You could sneak behind buildings, through fences, take back alleyways, and really only worry about having a bed to sleep on and a chair to sit on. But now you'll enter a world of parking anxiety. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle. The amount of time you thought you were saving driving home from work rather than walking is actually taken up by the frantic scramble to find an open parking spot. You will now have to pick your method of insanity, choosing between endless minutes of driving in circles over and over again, or withstanding the constant gnawing anxiety as the clock counts down in the back of your mind wherever you go, reminding you that soon you're going to have to move your car out of that two-hour limited parking space. Or... Once you actually do find a parking space, you'll have to withstand the anxiety of figuring out the exact angle to turn your car to fit nicely into that tiny space without scratching the cars beside you. Or taking on the dreaded 50-point turn parallel park. So, I just wanted to take this moment to thank all of those courageous, kind souls who offered me rides these past couple of decades of my life. I never knew how much they were sacrificing so I could live a happy pedestrian life. And all of you out there seeking a new pair of wheels, just make sure you're making an educated decision and remember to consider the earth, your wallet, your health, and your sanity before rushing to that car dealership. Pedestrians, count your blessings. And the rest of you, happy car shopping and good luck. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Ah, technology. Yes, I love technology. Uh, a little Napoleon Dynamite there. Um, I love technology, and yet it's supposed to, you know, ideally increase some connectivity, right? These phones, all the technology should be helping us get closer with those we love. So in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we can enable technology in our lives without disabling the family. And if the goal is connectivity, connectivity is defined like this. It's the state or quality of being connected. The ability to link and to communicate with others. So it doesn't just mean we get a good Wi-Fi signal. That That's great. That's probably the easy side of connectivity. The hard side is when you want to connect humans and make sure that we understand those around us and make sure that we listen we pay attention. And so uh, let me give you some tools that might help your family in the age of technology and connectivity to connect a little bit more effectively and how to manage your technology use. One of the first principles and rules is 
look look at your technology as a magnifying lens, not the boogeyman. Right? Not the evil, dangerous, you know, cancer plague that is destroying our youth. Sure. The, it's impacting our kids a lot. But the, I, when I say it's a magnifying lens, technology really is your friend. It's not your enemy. Many would love to just sit there and blame technology for all of the problems in their lives, for the fact that their children are distant, for the fact that their kids don't get good grades, the fact that they're looking at stuff online that they shouldn't be seeing, for their overeating because they sit in front of TV or their, their obesity because they never exercise. But another way to look at technology is not just to blame it for everything, but maybe look at it as a magnifying lens, meaning what happens with technology is it's going to magnify your natural tendencies anyway. If, if you have a tendency to get a little lazy and not exercise, having technology and cable TV and Wi-Fi and Netflix is probably only going to magnify your inherent weakness. It does with me. If I love to just escape in a movie, then the technology is going to, you know, shine a light on that and grow and, and, and grow it and, and embolden it. So it's not necessarily the cause of your problems, but it is magnifying and exposing your biggest weaknesses. If you have a self-esteem weakness and getting online on Facebook Facebook may not just be driving and causing your self-esteem problems as you look at the neighbors who are all doing so much better than you. It's just magnifying the fact that you have kind of a natural inclination to have lower self-esteem. And that's how you use it to magnify the weakness. So make sure you're pointing that out and, and focus as a family on and be real. Like Dr. Karens was saying, really look at yourself and ask, what am I doing with my technology that's that's harming me and was the, is that not a problem if i didn't have the technology would i not naturally just find my way to waste that time anyway so think of magnifying lens as 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 a, think of technology as a magnifying lens not as the boogeyman another rule get better not busy one of the things that um we we spend a lot of time doing with our technology is we try to use it to just get more done And the sad thing about getting more done is many times we spend all day doing things that we didn't need to do, that weren't even important to do. So instead of just using your your tools and your devices to get a lot more done, let's make sure we're actually improving, right? Let's make sure we're actually getting better. Make sure that you actually are changing and improving, not just being entertained. One of my children um, is on his phone constantly, and we sit there and we have discussions in our house, and out of nowhere, he pulls statistics, he pulls information, he pulls very relevant lessons and, and data that I had never known. And I ask him where he gets it, and he's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. He actually uses YouTube to go learn. He knows so much, but he's learned it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, it used to be we would learn that in school. He knows so much. Uh, he can. He just sits there, yeah, well, the sun is this far from the, the earth and the earth is this far from. And he's just learned it. 
on YouTube. It's not enough to just use the technology to keep us entertained and busy. Let's and even just chit-chatting and talking or finding the next great video that's moving and motivational. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But there's also a point that you, you ought to be able to not have to go to your phone to escape, but instead go now implement what you're learning. Like the question I always ask uh, the people and the couples I work with, what's one thing right now, if you did it right now, would positively impact your life? What's one thing? Can you think of one thing? Let's say you've even, you've even thought about doing it for years. What's, what's that one thing? Well, look, you already know. There's something you can go do right now. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I'm busy. Well, you're not busy on Netflix. So what we might want to do is when we have that one thing, if we don't know how to do it, we don't know how to do it effectively, use your technology to go get ideas on how to do the one thing that you know you need to go do. Use your technology to be an alarm to get you up earlier to go do that one thing. Make sense? The goal, getting better, not just staying busy. The goal of technology is to help advance us as humans, make us more human, more humane, not just more busy. Another rule, maximize the micro moments. Research from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love uh, 2.0, Creating Happiness and Health in Moments of Connection. She describes what she calls the power of the micro connections or moments of connection that are so important to our communication. Fredrickson's research suggests that love of another is not some constant, all-encompassing emotion we feel throughout the day. But instead, love is a small micro moment where we share a caring feeling or emotion. So when you think you love your family, loving of a family is not that's, – that's, that concept is not a constant concept because you're not constantly thinking about loving your family. That, that love would be made up of micro moments throughout the day where in a loving way for a short period of time, you are connecting in and serving and taking care of your family. She argues it's the micro moments really that are the major drivers of health and can dramatically improve your use of technology. So why not use our technology to create more micro moments? Text your son, hey, do you want to go on a walk today? My son's on campus here at BYU. I'm asking him, do you want to go on a walk today? Micro moment. Hey, how how did that test go? Micro moment. What did your friends say about whatever? Micro moment. So think of your life not just as big events. Well, we took our kids to Disneyland. That's so great. It might be better to have days full of micro moments, just little moments here and there where you express your love, you show your love, you care. And last but not least, we need to power up our will our willpower, right? So the final area we need to improve if we want to make our technology our servant, not our master, is we're going to have to start to to have some more willpower. And the fastest way I've ever found to grow willpower is to have some rules, some won't power, some things we just won't do. So if you want your kids to have more and more willpower with their phones, they need more rules, It sounds horrible, but the rules allow them to exercise their will and turn off the phone or put the phones away, right? Turn off the TV. And the more they have to exercise turning off the TV when they don't want to, the willpower will grow. It's, you know, 
It's the ability to do something you don't want to do, but you do it because you have a higher need, a higher purpose. And willpower, it's not just something we just talk about. It's something we can actually do. You could take a, have a regular technology fast where you could say every Sunday from morning till 5 o'clock at night, no technology. You can have a phone time when all the phones are turned off and turned in. In our house, we don't want the phones up in our kids' rooms. You might have a book time when only books can be uh, in the house. We're only reading books. We're not on our phones. You could have exercise times where maybe once in a while you go exercise as a family. You go play tennis as a family. You go do an activity as a family, and we put the phones away. Spend some time writing letters, visiting people, goal-setting. But the simple rule is let's spend more time exercising will. And when you do that, they'll learn to power up. So the four rules, very basically, to help us connect better without destroying the family. Think magnifying lens, not boogeyman. Get better, not busy. Maximize the micro moments and power up your will. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in a little coach's corner for you here today, uh, as we were just talking with Dr. Rodney Stark about, you know, myth of religion being in decline. Not, it's a myth, folks. Uh, religion's holding steady across the globe. And um, so I thought, hey, let's give you some ideas of why uh, the benefits or real impact that religion has in your life. Okay? Try to give you eight different ideas here. By the way, this all comes from LiveScience.com. LiveScience.com. The name of the article is Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life by Stephanie Pappas. Number one, religion helps you resist junk food. Does it? Because I am religious and I eat tons of junk food. But uh, in a study published in January of 2012 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers exposed students to references of God in tests and games and compared the students who saw references of pleasant but non-religious objects. And they found out that those that were religiously cued felt that they had uh, more control over their, their eating habits, whether they'd eat treats or not. Those that actually saw religious cues were less inclined to go eat the junk food. Hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, religion, interestingly, it, it influences your life by maybe possibly, uh, maybe even helping you lose weight. According to a study presented at an American Heart Association meeting in March of 2011, young adults who frequently attended religious activities um, are 50% more likely to uh, not to to 50% less likely to be obese by middle age. So it's you know if you're not eating junk food, it, this religion thing could be actually helping you lose some weight. It also puts a smile on your face. Uh, people uh, that are attending you know their churches regularly. According to a published study in the Journal of American Sociological Review, said that they're more happy, and not because of necessarily the denomination or the belief, but from the joys of being social, of being uh, and joining together with your fellowship of other people on a regular basis. So you know the ability to go to church and hang out with some of your friends and people that you are in your network at your church actually puts a smile on your face. They also found another benefit or impact of religion is it actually raises your self-esteem. You know, 
if, by the way, you live in the right place. Uh, depending on where you live, religion may also make you feel better about yourself or by making you a part of a larger culture. Um, people who are religious have higher self-esteem and better psychological adjustment than people who aren't. Now, that shouldn't make you mad. Oh, I see. That's why I hate religion. But I, they're probably talking about places where there's a higher concentration of your you know, religious belief. Maybe the Bible Belt, maybe kind of Intermountain area in the United States. If, As uh, Dr. Stark was talking about, uh, Central and South America, where many, many, many people are attending church every single week, up to 60 to 70 percent of people in South America are attending Mass. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Uh, interesting thing about religion is it soothes anxiety. Uh, if you're religious, thinking about God can help soothe the anxiety associated with making mistakes. In other words, believers can fall back on their faith to deal with setbacks gracefully, according to a 2010 study. Um, interesting in the study, I guess they also studied atheists. Apparently the trick doesn't work for them. Um, sad. Uh, another uh, impact of religion, it protects against depressive syst- symptoms. Depression recovery proceeds better against a backdrop of religion, according to one 1998 study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Older patients who were hospitalized for physical problems but also suffered from depression recovered better from their mental struggles if religion was an intrinsic part of their lives. That's according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2010. A belief in a caring God improves the response to psychiatric treatment in depressed patients. Wow. That's powerful. In fact, it's directly tied to a specific belief that a supreme being, a supreme being cared for them. So the belief, you know, this isn't just a bunch of gobbledygook. It feels good to know that you have a supreme being, a heavenly father or, a, you know, a God that's watching over you. Another impact religion has, according to the LiveScience.com report, eight ways religion impacts your life, is that it motivates doctor visits. You're more likely to go to the doctor if you, uh, in fact, are attending a religion. Religion is linked to health in general, possibly because religious people have more social support, better coping skills, and a more positive self-image than those people who don't join faith-based communities. In a a 1998 study published in the Journal of Health, Education, and Behavior, um, regular churchgoers are more likely to get preventative care in the case of mammograms. About 75% of the 1,500 church members in the study got regular mammograms, compared with 60% of a sample of 510 women who were not church members. Anyway, interesting. Last but not least, it lowers your blood pressure. People who attend church often have lower blood pressure than those who don't go at all. That's weird because for me, it actually raises my blood pressure sometimes. Like when you got to teach or you got to speak or you've got to do something. According to a study out of Norway in 2011, those results um, were impressive given the fact that church going is relatively rare in Norway. But what they found is participants who went to church at least three times a month had blood pressures one to two points lower than non-attendees. Powerful. So it helps. It's helpful. And again, you don't have to be all up in everyone's face about your religion. But a couple of things we've learned from Dr. Rodney Stark, it's it's not declining. Religious attendance is holding pretty steady 
Some, the younger generations, may not be attending as much, but it doesn't mean they're not believing. It just might mean they're sleeping in, which I'm going to bet in the 70s was pretty common. I'm going to bet the 18 to 30-year-olds in the 70s and the 60s, even the 80s, were probably sleeping in as well. And overall, uh, many things it does do for us. If anything, man, what if it could just elevate our conversation, elevate our, you know, our acceptance of one another, our tolerance, our appreciation of fellow human beings? Huge, powerful. That's it. Again, we can't do it without you. So go, go look up our app, uh, the BYU Radio app, and uh, you can download all of our podcasts. Share them with the people you love, you care about. We're helping you try to see the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas to help you uh, live healthier and happier right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, Kyle uh, Greenwald is joining us. He's an associate professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. And he studies the social studies school curriculum by exploring the ways in which history is applicable to the present. And the question we had for him was about homeschooling and how homeschooling is uh, how it's going in America. He wrote a wonderful article in The Conversation and gave us a lot of insight because I think we have some interesting beliefs about homeschooling and those that are are involved in homeschooling. And I wanted Kyle to come on and and really, you know, maybe teach us what's really happening in homeschooling. Uh, Kyle Greenwald, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. So you you also, by the way, are the author of the book uh, entitled Homeschooling, Creating Schools That Work for Kids, Parents, and Teachers. It it seems like when I was growing up and, you know, I used to think, well, homeschooling, who would who would want to miss this great experience of public education or education in a in a more public setting? But it's not. It used to be, it seems like, you know, people that religiously wouldn't, couldn't tolerate the school system, didn't like it. Those were the ones that uh, had pulled away. Talk to us about the history of how homeschooling started. It's not a new idea, is it? No, it's not a new idea, Matt. If, you, if we kind of step back and think about it, um, you know, for most of the uh, history of humankind, um, children have learned from their parents and other elders in their community in a home or community setting. They haven't necessarily gone to a place that we've set aside and said, you know, go learn here. Uh, This is where you learn, and the other spaces of your life are, you know, devoted to other pursuits. Um, So, you know, in that way, it's not a new idea. But, of course, you know, we've come to think about it as a modern phenomenon, and in many ways, when we talk about homeschooling, that's what we're talking about. Uh, The, uh, you know, modern homeschooling movement, you know, in some ways... It's a tricky story to tell because uh, there's really, you know, two wings. I think in the in the 70s when it really emerges, there's right. kind of more of a secular, critical wing concerned about some of the deadening effects of, you know, rote learning. Um, uh, could be even viewed as a certain type of indoctrination. You know, sit sit quietly, hold your hands, listen. Uh, but then there has been, and certainly the public face of um, homeschooling and the people who really did a lot of the work to to make sure that this was an option for parents uh, were mostly Christian evangelicals. Hmm. And so I think that's, you know, who we tend to think about 
when we think about homeschoolers, and of course there's a lot of stereotypes as you're alluding to. Right. Uh, we could talk about those. Or I think people probably know what we're talking about, the you know, socially awkward child, child who doesn't kind of fit in, uh, the child who you know, kind of wilts at the first uh, taunt from the playground bully. Hmm. Um, you know, but all the evidence we have, you know, in the research, and certainly I think if you talk to homeschool families, if you interact with those kids, you know, you see the wide diversity that you do in the public schools. And and it really, I mean, right now, I think the latest statistics that you cited, 1.5 million children were homeschooled in the United States in 07, which was up significantly from 03, which was at 1.1 million. Yeah, and um, some evidence, some of the um, coming from homeschool advocacy groups, but uh, claims of 2 million, you know, so uh, I don't think that's an unreasonable claim. So it seems like there's a lot of growth there, you know, and if we add in now options for online charter schools, which I know are um, something happened in Utah. Yeah. those are another group of kids who are being educated in the home but are actually not probably being counted in those numbers. It's, so it, it's, a, it's a growing phenomenon, I think we can say. And, and it seems like uh, it's being more and more accepted by the states as well. With um, it, it seems like more states are now allowing these homeschooled kids to come in and still participate in extracurricular activities, athletics, and, and other, other educational programs as well. Yeah, I personally think that's a really exciting development. Uh, certainly, you know, in the 80s, again, that generation that kind of established um, the right to homeschool or, you know, that, that option uh, it is now um, an option in all 50 states. Um, it's actually and, legal. It used to not be legal, huh? Right, right. Yeah, um, exactly. It's legal in all 50 states. There hasn't been, like, a, a, a right established to homeschool, but certainly right. it's legal. Um and, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think there's a lot of exciting trends. It does differ state by state. You know, what I've seen in Utah is that there's, uh, you know, kind of minimal, um, you might say minimal oversight or certainly minimal um, uh, directing to the parents what they need to do. Hmm. There's a lot of freedom for parents, and there's also a lot of encouragement of cooperation, as you say, uh, in terms of extracurriculars. Uh, the sports issue has become a big one. Uh, a lot of states are considering what they're calling the Tim Tebow laws, uh, allowing, you know, named after Tim Tebow, who was uh, homeschooled in Florida, hmm. uh, but played high school um, football and went on to fame at the University of Florida and now is a baseball player. Um, so states are considering that. Um, in many states, homeschool students can come to the public schools and take one or two classes. Uh, I think some districts are trying to think creatively, you know, about how they can create space for homeschool cooperatives or uh, other homeschool families to take advantage of some of the resources of the public schools. Um, so we're seeing, I think, in some spaces, more cooperation, and I think that's definitely to be welcomed. Is uh, when you have researched this, is it the same quality of education? I mean, I'm assuming in some cases it could be even better. Just to have because you know you might have a parent that was is well educated and really deeply into this opportunity and giving you a completely different type of learning, more hands on maybe more field trips or what have you. Is it the same learning 
um, as and the same are they coming out with the same standards? Are they coming out higher? Where where does a homeschooled child? How do they come out? How does it work? So that uh, is kind of the most controversial aspect of all the research, uh, comparing outcomes of homeschooled children with uh, publicly schooled children. And uh, as you can imagine, it's hard to set up control groups there and to really figure out, like, what's going on. But the evidence we do have, um, maybe as flawed as it is, suggests that homeschool students on a range of indicators are doing just as well, if not slightly better, uh, than publicly schooled students. Hmm. Um, and then I think, you know, the point that you made, though, is probably the more important one. There's going to be a range right. uh, of outcomes. Uh, there is in the public schools, and there's going to be uh, in home schools, you know. And ultimately, you know, each child brings something different to the world. Uh, each child um, is capable of achieving in different areas. And so I think this is part of the conversation that's really helpful. Is like, what do we want for our public schools? Or what do we think a well-educated person looks like? Hmm. Um, so that... Uh, I think there's debate about that in the public schools. Is this about learning academics? Is this developing you know, strong character and citizenship skills? Is this about job readiness? Uh, we you know, are starting to have that conversation again after 15 years of really focusing mostly on academics. Uh, so I think in the homeschool community, that's, parents have a greater freedom to really decide, like, you know, what, what do I want out of my child's uh, early education, hmm. understanding that they're going to go on learning the rest of their life. Um, so I it, think that's that's an important point. Yeah, and it seems to be it seems to be a, kind of a changing face as well because um, it's it's probably not just the same old two groups, kind of the ones that were afraid of the the rote kind of learning approach or the just the religious. Um, they they just wanted to separate and have a, a cleaner, more religious experience through schools. Um, it might – it seems like now there's a variety of other reasons and actually healthy, you know, opportunities for kids to learn uh, f- at home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so obviously religion is still really important uh, for a lot of people uh, when they homeschool. But, of course, even within religious communities, there's incredible diversity, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're – not only teaching their version of religion or uh, that they're not open to other ways of viewing the world or having their children interact with that. But, when, you know, some of the things we see in the research, you know, students with uh, special needs, um, perhaps extreme special needs that the public school can't really meet uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, students with allergies, which we know are hmm. much more common now. Schools try to do a good job with that, but it, it's hard when students have severe allergies. It's, it's a severe risk in some cases. Um, the Olympics remind us that there are students who have a special dream uh, in sports or the arts, and homeschooling is often a, a good option for them. Um, most interesting are getting some, uh, I think, of the most press these days, uh, a growing number of African-American parents who are homeschooling uh, out of concern that the school is just not providing a positive, uh, safe um, environment that, that, you know, that our society where racism exists, uh, that that, of course, filters into the school as well. Hmm. Does it, I mean, I guess one of the things I would always worry about is just kind of more the social integration, the ability to socialize these kids. And I, I mean, the, the neat thing is, it's not like there's there's not a million things they can go do socially uh, with sporting teams and other things, extracurricular stuff is 
are they how are they socialized and, and how does the typical homeschooling family make sure that uh they're not just putting their child away in a bubble right well, you know so you're absolutely right uh the socialization aspect is is key for any education you know we have to learn how to get along with other people people who are different from us um and of course there's if you think about our society there's learning opportunities everywhere like we don't just need to go to school to learn and i think that is certainly one positive message i take away from the homeschooling movement is that learning is all around us so we can think about uh where i live in michigan you know uh in lansing uh you know our children's museum slash science museum our local zoo i mean they have programs of course that during the day are catered to uh homeschool families um music programs um you know, they fill up after four, but during the day, uh, you can get in for your lessons. Uh, homeschool cooperatives are really uh, popular, I think, in homeschool families, where maybe once a week, uh, maybe four days of the week, you're home reading, um, um, you know, studying your lessons. I mean, Utah, uh, like in most states, homeschool families agree to teach the same subjects that all other students are learning. Uh, and to have approximately the same number of days of instruction. Uh, but that flexibility to get out in the community, uh, to join a homeschool cooperative, uh, I was just looking yesterday at uh, a new kind of social networking app that uh, just shows you what's going, the learning community is going on hmm. in, your, in your community. You know, and they do some minimal background checks. Uh, they have parents give input of the classes that are given. But, you know, I think moving toward a kind of a, a learning society where we understand that uh, all institutions should devote some of their uh, mission to, to education of not just young but old, and that to some degree all of us are teachers. Uh, we all have something we can share. And so teachers, you know, I, I was a public school teacher. I certainly work with a lot of them. Uh, I support them deeply, uh, and they have a special role to play in this, I think. I do too. But, uh, yeah, Kyle, let's take a break. I think, I think it's a it's a it's a pretty innovative thing, um, especially if your child uh, was struggling in the first place, or if you if you wanted to be a little different and and fine tune it to, to the needs of the individual, which I think historically schools have struggled doing. Um, interesting learning. We'll take a break. Come back more with Kyle Greenwald. Associate Professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. We're talking homeschooling and the innovations, the new face of homeschooling. Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Homeschooling, it's, uh, it's, it's growing, it seems like, in uh, the number of people doing it and the number of families involved in it. 
it's also succeeding in many regards and a lot of interesting new dynamics with technology and learning models and just opportunities, even apps that are now being used for homeschoolers. We've asked Dr. Kyle Greenwald to join us. He is a professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University, and he studies school curriculum by exploring the ways in which history is applicable to the present. He's the author of the uh, book entitled Homeschooling, uh, Creating Schools That Work for Kids, Parents, and Teachers. Dr. uh, Kyle Greenwald, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Matt. Having a good time. This is a – it's – again, we there were so many stereotypes about the kids that were homeschooled, and and yet then you see a, t- a Tim Tebow uh, who was obviously working on his, his uh, athletic career and very much successful and a great guy, kind of held up as a, an incredibly honorable, decent human being, obviously able to get through Florida State as well. And um, or was it Florida? I think it was Florida. Florida, yeah. yeah. And he made it, and then to the Broncos and everywhere else that he's gone, and now playing baseball. By the way, just hit a home run his first time up to bat in minor league baseball. But I guess Kyle, when when I think of of homeschooling, in a way, it's uh, th- this could be something more of the future, couldn't it? Where it's, you now have this very customized curriculum, and you can now actually go online and get so many classes, and now these kids can even go back to school and get college credit so they could get through school faster. Do you sense it's going to become even a, a bigger opportunity? Will more people be homeschooling in the future? Well, man, it's a really interesting question. You know, I think the... Um the idealistic side of me would like to see, of course, more personalized learning, uh, to see parents more involved in their child's education, uh, to see, again, our whole society uh, embrace, you know, putting learning at the center of what we do, putting learning at the center of our homes, um, but learning, you know, at the center of our, our public spaces, you know, and not just uh, who's right and who's wrong. So, you know, part of me would love that. I, I agree, you know, uh, people writing in the 70s imagine these learning networks that could exist hmm. that would get kids out into the community. But, of course, you know, that was, you know, they were thinking of going through the phone book or things like that, you know. And now uh, we are a social media society, and we can um, find uh, affiliation groups and people with similar interests or uh, niche interests and uh, develop skills. Uh, share those skills. So I think, you know, that's incredibly uh, exciting to ponder. You know, there's are some big questions there. Uh, most or many families are um, dual career or dual income. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're moving toward a more flexible working society, too, where there's maybe more opportunities for some folks to work at home or work, you know, four days a week or telecommute. Uh, you know, the possibilities are there, you know, and I think... Uh, we have some choices to make as a society. Are we going to support this? Um, it's hard to know. Yeah. And we uh, certainly view schooling as a rite of passage. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of, in, you know, people remember the, you know, the Friday night football game, the homecoming dance, uh, their graduation. So some of these, you know, they go deeper than just an organization. I think they're very much, uh, we view them almost as rites of passage. And I think that's why we get a little nervous mm-hmm. and people, uh, you know, say, well, that's not for me. So it's hard to say what will happen. There's a lot of uh, strong opinions out there, you know, that are 
very against homeschooling. Yeah. Uh, well, and it also, I mean, we also are dealing, I guess, with institutions and, um, you know, laws and tax codes and money and numbers. And, you know, a lot of people need to keep numbers up. Um, but two, there seems to be a lot of pressure on the parent of the homeschool when they're homeschooling. I mean, it's you can't just pretend to like do homework on the weekend with your kid. This is every day. This is a major commitment from the parent. Yeah, it is. It is. I, you know, I, I don't know if I could do it myself. You know, I yeah. have three children, and uh, you know, I'm deeply involved in their education. But I'm, I'm thankful that there's a public school there that can share that burden with me. But I have a lot of admiration for uh, the parents that I know that do this. Um, I think they remind us all that raising kids is uh, a lot of work, and it's a huge responsibility. Hmm. And financially, it's got to be a major sacrifice because, I mean, it would it could potentially make you a just no longer a dual income family if if you actually made such a commitment. And and then to to think of having three kids, four kids that you're taking through this at different levels, and be able to create uh, some of the the I don't know I guess just the opportunities that they all need. What I, I guess if somebody was considering doing homeschooling. What should they be thinking about before they make the big move? Well, I think, you know, if it's something you're considering, I, you know, I mean, obviously you want to consult your child. Uh, I think this is something that they have to want to do, and you have to know your child, first of all. Is this um, a situation in which they're going to flourish? Uh, you know, we've tended in our society kind of shift the responsibility of learning away from the learner, you know, and I think any teacher knows and any parent knows that it's it's the child's responsibility at the end of the day like we can't force them to learn hmm. so it has to and and we don't need to i mean this is look at an infant the, the way they interact with the world their curiosity um so this is you know a not something this is, we don't have to view this necessarily as as a insurmountable task educating children but you can't do it alone okay so you know know the groups uh i would say network uh, think about what are the opportunities in your community uh, that are going to allow uh, your child to have a rich uh, experience, not just in the home, but outside of the home. I think uh, some research suggests that when parents first try to homeschool, they often try to recreate the school uh, in in their home, mm-hmm. you know, with um, scheduled times uh, for scheduled subjects much more regimented than actually learning needs to be. And so I think many uh, parents start to introduce more flexibility into the daily schedule, uh, give children some more choices, and as you say, really customize or individualize that uh, educational experience. And I think that that's important to know that uh, the way in which we do school is not necessarily the only or the best model hmm. for how kids learn. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's the way we do it to get masses through. But mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily – I mean a lot of the historically valuable learning models, it's like like you're saying, turn turn the learning back to the learner. Let the learner kind of self-initiate. And I mean you can't do that at certain ages. But as they get older, to also help your, ch- your child find their passion and then help them learn mathematics through something they're passionate about. Um, I was never passionate about mathematics until – I needed to take statistics classes to get a PhD, 
and validate my study, then all of a sudden math mattered to me. But if I had been able to do that earlier in something I was passionate about, it would have made more sense to me. Exactly. I mean, we're, you know, we should be rightly concerned about uh, kind of the foundational or base knowledge and skills that all kids need. Um, But we have to understand we have a lifetime to go on learning and growing. And so what we're really doing in these early years is to lay a foundation for the child to want to go on learning uh, throughout their lifetime. And so that, that motivation, uh, keeping that curiosity and that spark alive, uh, you know, we know schools struggle with that. Kids get to fifth, you know, they come in eager, they get to fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and uh, then school becomes something of a, you know, a drudgery or a burden for many kids. And, and that's, that's sad, you know. That's, uh, we know that's a reality. Um, but that, I think that's something our society needs to work on. Yeah, no, I do too. And to also know that, it, I mean, it is, it's a viable option and it's, it's one that uh, I think we can, we can take advantage of. It doesn't mean it also has to govern us. It doesn't mean once you, you know, you couldn't go back as well. It, it, it's, it's there for all of us. I appreciate your work, uh, Dr. Kyle Greenwald. Thank you for being with us again. And uh, go check out the book, Homeschooling, Creating Solutions That Work for Kids, Parents, and Teachers. It's another option, folks, if you're, if you're struggling, if your child is struggling in, the, in their situation or they just aren't maximizing it. Um, maybe there's levels of homeschooling that would work. And there are a ton of resources. So go start, uh, go start looking for some of those resources if that's the direction you need to take. Just another option of life. My friends, we'll take a break. Come back, wrap up hour number two of the program. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I forgot about Airborne, uh, the airlines that sponsors the show. That's Why didn't Terry and Kelly, why didn't they go to Airborne to have their baby? They could have walked away with a million air miles. miles. Right. Which, with the way air miles go today, that's easily, that's one person's flight and one, a half. One leg of a flight. <laughs> Uh, I hope they're doing great. Remember, Terry, our producer, Terry South, and his wife, Kelly, are currently in the hospital having a baby. Any update on that? We are checking with Sadie on an update, baby update. Okay, the stork has not yet delivered the baby. They are waiting in the waiting room for the gentle dropping of the baby into the arms of the mother. That was sweet. That's not how it goes. She's waiting to be tortured. We uh, have got some important news for you folks. Seriously, before you leave home, you need to kiss your significant other goodbye. Mm, Thank you, Jeff. Oh, that's enough, Jeffrey. (laughs) Anyway, um... You got to kiss your spouse goodbye. According to a 10-year study, psychology study undertaken in Germany during the 80s, they found that men who kissed their wives before leaving for work, on average, they lived five years longer. Whoa. I know. So should I wake my wife up and kiss her? Absolutely. 
And they, they just love share that. the steady with her mm-hmm. before she punches me in the face. If you want to live five years longer, if you want to earn 20 to 30% more than your peers, you better leave with a kiss. Love the song, by the way. You got a kiss. And now, the kissing also, by the way, decreased the possibility of a car accident by 50%. Say what? I know. One cute little kiss from your significant other can change your life. It makes you happier, healthier, live longer, make more money. Psychologists do not believe it's the kiss itself that accounts for all of that, but rather the kissers were likely to begin the day with a positive attitude. I'm just going to put on a helmet before I give her a kiss. Well, just let her know that before I leave, I'm going to kiss. We got a kiss. Dr. Matt said, we needeth a kiss. Or right. he dieth early. A large number of studies have shown that touching someone on the upper arm for just a second or two can have a surprisingly significant effect on how much help they then provide. Mm-hmm. By the way, make sure that touch is consensual. And don't be doing it at work. Similar uh, work has shown that the same subtle touch also significantly increases the likelihood that people will sign petitions. So if you need a petition signed, make sure you're touching the people. It also uh, leaving it. It helps uh, with tipping. So if the waitress tips or touches your arm for a second, or the attendant might touch your arm as you're going through the toll booth, you might throw a tip out to him. Hmm. You also might lose your arm. I'm just saying. So affection, folks, it makes you more successful. And uh, as we love to do what we can to pick up your game and help you help pick up ours. Let's just spend this weekend lots of touch, and let's commit that we won't leave home without a kiss. That was very touching. Thank you. And end scene. Okay, we will wrap it up, folks. That's hour number two of the program. Stick with us, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives, one kiss at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You can stop touching me now, Matt. 